Hello, I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 5 of Seen From Above, an informal podcast about the cool things happening in Earth observation. Check out seenfromabove.org for the podcast archive and show notes. Follow the show on Twitter via at EOSeenFrom and using the hashtag SeenFromAbove. This episode, we'll be talking to Stefano Politi about drones. Let's do the news then. It's the 13th of May 2020. We're just amazed at the pace that we're still running at in observation. And and I was going to say geospatial, but especially Earth observation. I saw today that planet are due to launch or are planning to launch on another SpaceX flight. I think another six more Skysats. Now Skysats are the, the old Terabellas, if you, if you remember those. Yeah. So higher resolution than the, than the doves. So yeah, it's, it's, it still seems to be full steam ahead for launching. But I guess if you're sort of a high cadence imagery company, you, you, you have to keep up this. Which brings me on to the first thing that I wanted to mention, <laughs> which is PricewaterhouseCoopers in France have created this document about the resilience or how they perceive the resilience of the space sector. I was curious to dive into it a little bit and, and see what they said about the component that we're most interested in. And of course, it's a perennial discussion we have, isn't it? But they break it down in, in, into sort of quite a neat neat summary table at, at the start, kind of traffic light system. And virtually everything is either neutral or expecting to have a negative impact on the COVID-19 other than the demand for Earth observation data, which is welcome. Yes. Uh, and in some respects, interesting. And I, and I do wonder if it's a sort of temporal demand, because if you scroll into the document and you, and you go into the Earth observation bit, there are quite a few sort of caveats in there. And they're saying that one of the biggest drivers is the need for data. So we quite often hear one of the solutions to the pandemic is to look at look at data and they're saying this sort of uh, big data analytics. So it sort of acknowledges that the large space agencies like ESA and NASA are, are putting money into this. And this is interesting in the sense that it's an acknowledgement that the, the data is coming to the fore and using the data and the value chains of this data do have or seem to be having an impact yeah it's really interesting like you say the only thing that's green is the demand for earth observation and i've I've got to say that recently i've had quite a few conversations with large numbers of people about the use of earth observation and the appetite to really start consuming earth observation data in various different ways i mean whether it's satellites or whether it's aerial or, or, or drone data which we'll talk about later there just seems to be this need for measuring stuff and monitoring stuff and, and getting information. And the best way people are beginning to realize is to use Earth observation in, in some way. And so that definitely hits a nerve with me, that that demand thing that marries up exactly with what I've been hearing from various different sources. When you look at the entire table, it is quite shocking just how much red is in there and how, how this uh, virus is is hitting yeah, the space sector as, as well as every other sector that's out there at the moment. Only time will tell. I do sort of think people are beginning to wake up to Earth observation and saying, look, we can't go out into the field at the moment. It's not possible. Or we, we're really struggling to measure this. And it's not just the sort of looking at, oh, there's no cars on the roads at the moment. But it's also about very important environmental impacts. That's the other sort of the side consequence of this awful 
pandemic that's going on is that it distracts us from other big things. Um, so my first bit of news is we've got three upcoming events that I want to make you aware of. So the first one is OSGO UK are hosting Phosphogy UK online on the 17th of June. And you can submit papers and follow all the preparatory shenanigans and things using at Phosphogy UK on Twitter. And this is open to anyone around the world to come and present if they want to or to attend. And it's basically all about use of uh, free and open source software for geospatial purposes. Check out the links in the show notes. The second event that I want to highlight is that GEO, the Group on Earth Observations, are hosting a week-long virtual symposium from the 15th to the 19th of June. So that's quite good. You could do uh, maybe 15th, 16th, then pop out for Phosphor UK online on the 17th, then back in for 18th, 19th, uh, (laughs) the the GEO thing, if you fancy a whole week. And then the third and final event is Seen From Above having another lunchtime chat on the 21st of May, this time about deep learning in Earth observation. If you want to, you can come and sign up for that. And um, there's a few spaces left at the moment. I'd be interested to hear how are companies responding to everything being moved online? Is it easier to convince an employer to say, look, can I attend this conference? It's low cost or low cost. I can dip in and out of it as needed and I can do my job as well, potentially um, in the background when stuff isn't going on that is as interesting. Yeah, no, that'd be interesting to know. Yeah, there's so much stuff going on, isn't there? I wanted to talk about a blog post that I saw and I'm really pleased to be mentioning it primarily because it's in R. So this is a step-by-step guide to making 3D maps with satellite imagery in R. And it's a really nice, well-constructed post on how to to get hold of SRTM data, how to get hold of Landsat data. It's written to a degree that I think that I should be able to get up and running and produce what is effectively a very nice three-dimensional image of um, Zion National Park in Utah using Landsat 8 data. So it's incredibly clear. the The writing and the structure of the the post is incredibly clear. I see Ray Shader quite a lot. Okay, talked about um, on Twitter, and I wonder allowed what the python equivalent is but you raise a good point if anyone out there is aware of a sort of a ray shader port in python or an equivalent in python then let us know could be something that gets added to the awesome earth observation code as well yep over 300 resources he says shouting in now (laughs) (laughs) it's all about sharing information sharing knowledge we're really big on collaboration on this podcast and this is just one thing that we want to do so my next bit of news uh, i thought i'd go for a little bit different in this uh, this episode's news so this is about airborne sar data collection and it's something that's been happening during the lockdown in italy it's just a little blog post from a company called metasensing radar solutions which are a dutch and italian company i think they have been up in the air collecting information in northeast italy using an l-band sar called meta SARL. Basically, it's to try and support utility companies in monitoring and detecting water leaks and that sort of thing. Mm. And there's some lovely imagery, just sort of normal photography from a camera out of the window of the area that they were collecting over. Uh, And it's just an interesting little 
post. And I thought because we don't talk about airborne that much, and we certainly don't talk about airborne radar data collection, I'd highlight it because there's some really nice imagery as well that's um, shown. So they've processed up some polarimetric imagery and dropped that over what looks like Google Earth to me. Are you going to appreciate me asking you this question, which is, do you want to educate us all on the different bands of SAR? Oh, it's been ages since I, I... So it's to do with frequency of the electromagnetic radiation that is sent out and then received by the radar system. And frequency and wavelength are related. And so I always find it easier to just think of wavelength. So X-band is very short wavelengths, and that results in reasonably clear imagery. So if I was to show you an X-band image, you would be able to look at it and go, okay, that's... Yeah. So you'd be able to recognize features in it and then you go through so it's x then c then l and these are getting longer wavelengths uh, through to p and there's probably others that proper SAR people know all about yeah so an l band is pretty long in terms of the wavelengths that it's uh, capturing data at which means that it can penetrate things like vegetation a lot more and and get into the soils and that sort of thing depending on how dry your soils are so that's why it'll be used for water leaks. As ever, you always find the most interesting thing that I want to talk about. <laughs> I don't know how you do it. You have an uncanny neck. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. I wanted to sort of, as my final thing that I've seen this month, talk about Sentinel Hub. They've just done this thing called Cloud Masks at Your Service. And they have this um, Sentinel 2 cloud detector. It's really, really great that they've, that they've done this and they've, incorporated all of this stuff into you know, learn and all, all their other things like blue dots so, so sort of stepping through very quickly across this but basically this this cloud masking is now available on sensible hub is is the new story this is the type of service that non-eo users will find it more useful it'll be more intuitive to them because they're not coming at these data thinking oh okay, there's going to be problems with cloud or anything like that. It's, they'll be coming and saying, oh, Earth observation, that's been touted as the thing that can tell us the answer to whatever problem it is we're looking at. And then they get confronted with a mass of imagery with cloud in it. Well, if we can clear that out at this stage, that really helps promote the message that Earth observation is useful. For me, it circles back around to the very first thing I mentioned about the PCW thing, which is saying the demand. Yeah. Demand isn't coming for people wanting to see cloudy images. It's just, it's not. The, yeah. the, the demand is coming from people to say, I, I've got a big problem now. I can't do what I was normally doing. What can you do for me? Cool. That's a really interesting post. Um, so my final piece of news is a blog post that comes via rapidlesso.com. Sao Paulo in Brazil has dropped a huge amount of LiDAR data onto its open source portals. So... 33 billion points, according to this blog post. Sao Paulo City has uh, created a service where you can go and search around, download, and, and visualize all of these LiDAR data. So I think they're stored as a, a point cloud service, but there's also a sort of interactive 3D portal thingy where you can start to, to slice and change things up and, and generate images from the data. A bit like the Airborne SAR stuff, we don't talk about LiDAR enough. I mean, there's only so many minutes that we, we have to be able to do this. And it's just really interesting to see point cloud data set, which again, isn't really something I use a lot. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. It's amazing how it sort of is loading in. You almost want to touch it. And that's it for the news.
In this episode, we're really lucky to have Stefano Politi with us uh, to talk about drones. So Stefano, can you tell us a little bit about who you are? So what your background is and where you're currently based and things like that? Uh, yeah, hello and uh, thank you very much for uh, inviting me to this uh, podcast series. It's very exciting. I'm Stefano Politi and I come from originally from Italy, but it's about 10 years that I've been based in Scandinavia, that being Finland, Sweden, and then I ended up in Norway. I've been in Norway now for seven years. Now I'm employed at the Norwegian Institute of Bioeconomy Research. Throughout this Scandinavian journey, I work mainly with forest remote sensing and in particular with the 3D methods, so LiDAR, photogrammetry and uh, a bit of insight. So during uh, my PhD, I kind of focused my work into uh, the digital aerial photogrammetry, both from manned and unmanned aircraft every time for uh, forest inventory purposes. In this journey, basically, I stumbled upon drones and uh, I immediately saw that uh, well, the great thing that they were offering is that uh, uh, suddenly I could produce my own 3D data uh, of very high quality, very high resolution. So that was very exciting to be able to collect my own data sets, customize and so on. And, so talking about being able to create your own data, there's a whole host of questions that are popping up there. So maybe first off is, can anyone fly a drone for scientific purposes? In terms of technical skills to fly a drone and to process that data yourself, everyone can do it. In terms of legislation, it differs between countries. Okay. The legislation is somewhat being unified at the European level at the moment but we're still in the early stages of that. So it varies a bit from country to country. I'm guessing you own your own drone and sensor. Can the sensors be switched? Uh, yeah, it depends a little bit on the grade of the drone. Uh, the, the cheapest ones that you may all know, like Phantoms or so on, they kind of come in a package and that's, they have their camera and that's it. But then there is a whole range of drones. Uh, we go into more expensive drones, but... Uh, that are uh, yeah, more customizable and so on, so definitely. I've never been very clear on the mistakes you can make from acquiring data. And I, I sort of reference what you're saying about the 3D modeling. What are the common mistakes that people have made and, and how savable is, in inverted commas, and I, I really don't know how to define this, but how savable is bad data? Yeah, so, well, I can tell you, I could tell you a lot about it because uh, <laughs> when, when I started in the beginning of it, uh, Drones weren't popular at all in forestry, so there wasn't any resource, weren't any resources online and so on. I, I did have to go through those mistakes, and one of the biggest ones, for example, with photogrammetry, it's acquiring images with too little overlap. Okay. And that causes problems, especially in particularly in forested environments, that simply you're not able to reconstruct the 3D geometry of the trees. So that's really a major problem that you just go back home and the data is rubbish. So it's un unusable. Completely binned. It's no good at all. Uh, you could use it somehow to derive, let's say, an ortho mosaic or something like this, but not the 3D product. That, that's where you really have the, the advantage. Other issues may relate more with, let's say, the weather or the wind. If you fly in a very windy day, you'll have trees swaying and that will cause problems or but those are not so dependent on you sometimes you are you just have to fly 
Yeah, that's an interesting thing, though, mentioning the weather conditions there, because both Andrew and I, and I think I'm right in speaking for Andrew in this case, use satellite data in the main. The sort of big problem we have is that a cloud will be between our sensor and the thing that we're trying to measure. But if there are sort of multiple clouds, but sunny periods, do you have to account for that? Sort of like shadows coming and going over your site? Or does it not matter? Is it still scientific grade data? What are the sort of things you need to look out for? Yeah, so that's not a great situation to be in. You'd like to avoid that. But at the same time, you know, when you are out in the field, and you just need to do this flight. You just had to do it. And what I've seen in my research is that it doesn't affect too much the quality of this uh, surface models, these 3D models that we can derive from it. Uh, of course, yeah, it would be best to have uh, constant uh, lighting conditions. The main issue is when you start having these very bright objects, like here in Norway, it can happen quite often that you have a field with snow that is still remaining and that overexposes the image and then you get this very dark forest or the opposite that you get this very burnt overexposed parts and those there in those pixels basically you have no information so as long as you have some kind of texture it's still possible to match these features in these different images Oh, that's quite cool. That's one nil to drones then, because if you're doing optical satellites, you can't see anything through the cloud, or at least you can collect some data and then manipulate it how you need to. Yeah, actually uh, having full cloud cover it's, can be an asset, it can give you oh. really nice data sets because you're basically getting these diffuse lights, so you remove all the shadows and so on, and that can be good if you're looking, for example, like classifying tree species or such okay. things. Can you give me a heads up on what the sort of process is? So you've you've acquired the data. What sort of corrections do you need to make to it to make it useful? What software do you you use? Is it open? Is it proprietary? Yeah, so what's critical is uh, the photogrammetric software that basically converts these 2D images into the 3D. And I use this, it's called the Agisoft Metashape, which is a Russian software, which is, let's say, the, the, the gold standard these days to process drone images. There are other softwares. Uh, this is just the one that I started with and I stick to it. It gives very good results. This is proprietary, yeah? You have to pay for it. It is. Uh, you need to pay a license. Uh, and I think this is a one-time license, if I remember correctly. This software, what it does is that it tries to find similar features in the images and matches unordered images. And once they're matched and you know the position of those images, you can uh, go pixel by pixel and uh, triangulate and derive a depth or a height of a certain object. Uh, It can get quite complex because there is a whole step of optimization of these camera positions, which is the critical part and is this structure from motion part which is really what enabled the, the, the possibility to, to create these advanced 3D models from the drone data, which is characterized by poor positions. We have poor GPS position on the drone, and the structure from motion really gives you uh, a good, a better position. Given that you're using this to pull out 3D information about trees, I can see how if you had a building and you were doing structure from motion, you got something really 
solid that you're trying to to pull out in, in a 3D sense. Are trees more difficult because they've got moving parts basically and leaves and and branches and everything else? What are some of the challenges, uh, sort of academically, that you're finding in terms of trying to do this type of work? Trees are uh, complex structures, 3D structures. So, like recreating the 3D model of a tree from images can be challenging, especially when you have leaves that are moving. You may have wind that you're not accounting for and so on. So that's a major challenge. And then again, the variability in the light conditions and in the atmospheric conditions, even though before I said that, you know, overall it can produce good data, it can be also a challenge when you want to, let's say, transfer uh, a model that you fit on some data onto a new data set. The, the, the transferability of the methods that you develop uh, may be linked to the actual weather conditions at the moment of that acquisition. So either you need to train your models based on a lot of different images that are taken in different light conditions and so on, or you need to find some ways to deal with it. And that's still uh, not so studied. And I think it's, uh, it's something that needs to be addressed a bit more. On this podcast so far, we've been really bad at just lumping everything as drones and just saying, oh, you're the drone guy, come and tell us about drones. But actually, there are lots of very specific use cases for these things. And you know, yours in forestry is very specific. And I, I guess it's just like any other area of earth observation remote sensing you generate all of these sort of knowledge and skills around that specific area and actually the drone is just the thing you use to get your data and it just so happens it does some really cool stuff really we should be coming to you as the forest guy who's using drones maybe yeah yeah i mean it's very true eh? and even like with people that are within my institute and they apply drones uh let's say in the agricultural field we are doing totally different stuff they are all into the hyperspectral world. We are much more, let's say, in the LIDAR world. They don't really care about that 3D information, and right. where, which for us is actually critical. So, yeah, we're totally talking about two different realms there. How do you feel about the sort of general ecosystem of airborne, space-derived, drone-derived data and how, how it all comes together? I made a note when you started talking that I, I was going to ask you about the Jedi data set, which is uh, this sort of LIDAR from, from space. Do you use the Jedi data with the drones or are you the, or are you the guy? <laughs> I don't think you're going to say yes, but are you the guy who just goes, no, it's just drones. That's it. I'm not, in, I'm not interested in any of the data. No. So actually that has been uh, quite a focus of my research. Uh, I did a study back in 2018 on using drones in combination, for example, with Sentinel-2 um, mm to get this, so we actually had field, like sample plots, ground truth data. On top of that, we had drone data, and on top of every samples of drone data, and then we had wall-to-wall -wall layer of Sentinel-2, and we kind of had this hierarchical models linking all these three levels of information Ooh. to get, at the end, the map on the pixel level of the Sentinel-2, but that had a boost from the drone data. It is very much complementary and they shouldn't be seen as like alternatives to each other. Drones will never replace earth observation data as well as the opposite, you know? There are some things that just we cannot tell, like with the Jedi, as you mentioned, we get a waveform. We don't know exactly what's in that waveform, but if we have uh, lately, I've been working on drone laser scanning data where you're talking about like thousands of points per square meter 
And then we can detect single stems, we can detect branches, we can detect uh, different components of a tree. So then that can help us, for example, to say what's in a Jedi pulse. Yeah. Okay, we have this many trees uh, or this many leaves or this much. Uh, so it's uh, very much uh, a complementary role. Just building on that, is the idea to try and create a digital twin of the tree so that you can break things down? Yeah, exactly. So when they're looking from the ground, they get much... Uh, with the terrestrial uh, approaches, you get much more description of the stems uh, uh, on the lower parts of the canopy, and you have more occlusions on the top. Whereas with the drone, it's always harder to penetrate to the, bo to the bottom of the canopy. So getting that stem structure it can be challenging if the forest is particularly dense, especially in the lower parts. So it's a bit two different approaches. Uh, the great advantage of having it from the air is that suddenly you're not so limited in space as with yeah. the terrestrial applications. How, how, big is your, uh, how big is your hard disk? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but I, yeah, the IT department continues to keep... I was just thinking when you were saying we can get pixel, you know, all these different points and get leaves, I was thinking, oh man, you must be using a lot of storage to... to to look at this stuff yeah but at the same time you have to keep in mind that uh, it's a lot of data but for a small area so the, the areas are always very limited i guess it's quite a lot of effort for you to, to put it into the cloud if, if you were to do that maybe you do do more local processing yeah that's the case mostly uh, i think most drone users do some uh, processing locally. Uh, some of these uh, photogrammetric softwares are offering cloud processing solutions for that photogrammetric part. Yeah. Then the rest, it's really taken then locally. Is there a part of the world that's taking up the uh, sort of drone data for um, scientific research and academic research more than others? Do you have any comments about areas that might be emerging or or areas that are really sort of hot on this drone technology at the moment? Yeah, so I came across a review paper, I think, not long ago that was actually mentioning that, I don't remember the exact figures, but the, what came out was that Europe was really the driving force in drone research. That's where most of things were happening and perhaps maybe related to the property structure private properties that we, we're all cramped in with small private property properties and so on. Whereas like if you look at the US or uh, South America, you're talking in a much larger extent where drones may not really make sense. I know, yeah, a little bit in Africa that uh, in developing countries, it's an interesting option. It's appealing when there's not so much infrastructure and this allows you to really get out some pretty fancy data with uh, little effort. Australia and New Zealand are two big players also. I'm in contact with people in New Zealand and they, they really do quite a lot of work on that. And yeah, New Zealand loves its spatial data. Um, open drone map. Um, do you use it? You know, what is it? Is that something you've looked at or is that something new? Um, I haven't personally looked at it. Um, I heard of it and I guess it's mostly for to do this uh, 3D reconstruction, but I'm not really familiar with it, so I, will, I wouldn't be able to really give you more detail. No, I mean, I'm not, I'm not completely obsessed with open <laughs> data. I mean, I, you know, I like to think of myself as software and data agnostic, but 
I, I just, you know, just wondered if it was something that you, you'd come across. You sent us this, this document where you were going to give a special session at Forestat 2020. Now, I'm guessing, like many other conferences, that Forestat isn't going ahead at the moment. Um, I was just wondering, do you want to maybe give a little overview about what you were hoping to get from that session? Uh, yeah, so unfortunately, it won't be happening either also in 2021, because there is another conference, which is uh, Sylvie Laser, that will be held in 2021, which is uh, somewhat the community, it's overlapping and so on. So then the forest that was postponed to 2022. The idea of the special session was to really bring together some of the experts that have been working on these issues for the, let's say, past seven years or so and to collect a bit the, the, the uh, knowledge that main points of thing and things that we understood in this in the past to see a little bit where we should take the, the, the field in the future to kind of narrow it down to the applications that are actually useful for which drones can really make uh, a difference in the future. Oh, it's a shame it didn't go ahead. That sounds really cool. Thanks so much for your time. So uh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you, guys. Thank you. We encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using at EOSeenFrom, where you can find a vibrant community based around the podcast. Thanks for listening. And that's it for now. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Alistair. Bye. Bye. I do feel sometimes that I'm stuck in the middle of a sitcom sketch. Podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.